If you had the chance, would you change the world? Welcome. I'm your host, Ebony Gustav, and this is Cooperative Journal, where I interview mutual aid initiatives and cooperatives from around the world who are creating alternatives to our current economic system. The Valley Alliance of Worker Co-ops is a secondary cooperative, meaning they're a cooperative made up of member co-op. Their members are part of a regional network based in western Massachusetts and southern Vermont. Through this network, they're able to provide developmental support, cooperative education, and ultimately raise awareness to strengthen the cooperative economy. In this episode, I speak with Executive Director Adam Trott about the benefits of strong cooperative alliances, resources needed for worker co-ops to be sustainable, cooperative internships for students, peer-to-peer learning, and how we can cultivate more cooperation between cooperatives. Hello, Adam. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Really looking forward to learning about the work that the Valley Alliance of Worker Co-ops is doing to build cooperative support networks. Um, so can you share what the Valley Alliance of Worker Co-ops is? Absolutely. And again, thanks for having us. Uh, this is really exciting. So um, we're really touched that you wanted to reach out and, and connect. So the Valley Alliance was founded in 2005 when a group of worker cooperators wanted to build more relationships and see more worker co-ops in their area. Uh, I was part of this group that went to the Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy, which is a great conference to go to. It was in New Hampshire that year, drove up with some people I didn't know, came back, had some phone numbers, and we started meeting monthly because this kind of handful of us, maybe five or six, loved going to workshops and talking with each other and just having a relationship that you can uh, rely on or a set of relationships you can rely on to help you navigate being in a co-op and then to be the best you can for your co-op. So we formalized in 2009, uh, hired part-time staff person. His name is Urban Kroll. He now works at the neighboring food club association. He was fantastic for us brought a lot of experience and resources that we didn't have. And we started, you know, we had a committee that talked about dues. We wanted to become a co-op ourselves, um, you know, really try to mirror the Mondragon and Italian experiences and uh, others across the world. And here we are, about 12 years later, um, I became the executive director when Urban left and that's the that's the basics of of who we are nice and what sparked the creation of Vok? so a lot in the the group of us we each kind of had our own thoughts about what you know we each had different reasons for wanting to build something and it actually was an interesting what i'll call creative tension because you know there were some people with a very anarchist approach for example who thought that you know any hierarchy was bad hierarchy and so having a staff person was a bad idea, for example, uh, unless they were a member. And then there were people who, um, you know, wanted to just be a nonprofit, maybe try to get grants, although there maybe there's only one, pe- one person who wanted to do that. Um, and they weren't a grant writer, so that kind of made the argument hard. And there were this, you know, big group of people who said, I think, you know, basically, what do we have to do to have worker co-ops step into the dialogues of development? What is it, what's it going to take for us to kind of frame the work so that worker co-ops would put time and resources into building other cooperatives, supporting themselves, engaging in marketing, education, legislation, um, and financing. So, Speaking personally for me, those kind of ideas were really exciting and new. You know, this was not, at at the time, in 2005 through 2009, there were really only one or two other small or local worker cooperative networks. There was no boss, network of Bay Area worker cooperatives in the Bay, in California. And then there was um, the Portland, Portland area cooperative something posse. And 
they were really great, but they kind of stopped. I don't think they continued to, to meet just when we started to really meet. So th- it was kind of new. This thing was, you know, having a local, uh, you know, cooperative that just met needs locally was something that was still really fresh. Yeah, I think that's so important to have um, co-op networks that are more local because then it's addressing the needs of that locality. Like I know that you guys help with um, legislation as well. And that's really dependent on the region that you're in. So what would you say is the difference between an alliance of cooperatives versus individual cooperatives just working together? Oh, I think it makes a lot of difference if you want to make impact in your region in exploring and developing the model. Uh, For example, uh, you know, there had been worker cooperatives in Western Massachusetts for a long time and Southern Vermont for a long time, over 50 years. Uh, In the 20 or 30 years before the Valley Alliance formalized. There were two, or depending on how you count, maybe three conversions to worker cooperatives. Um, once VOC formalized, we were um, working on our eighth, and that's been 12 years. So that there's something to the model where, because we have a peer-to-peer network, we can say, hey, you can just come to a meeting. You can talk to these people. And there's a, like, a, like a live wire to people who are really doing this work. We're not trying to sell anyone anything. We don't have a package you need to sign up for. You can just come to a meeting and talk to people. And the people who come to VOC meetings are fantastic. They have been. And they're you know, generous with their time and expertise. And it's a low-stress way of learning about how you can convert to a co-op. So that's, that's one thing where we just kind of saw how important this particular venue was for a lot of different kinds of people to gain access to the model. Um, Another one is around education. And about a third of my work as staff is about education. So we have internal programming for our co-ops. That's, you know, new members and learning about the model, Um, getting all of our representatives to learn about other aspects of the cooperative movement, housing and food cooperatives and credit unions. And uh, then we have external education where we want to, we want to tell the public, we want to shout from the rooftops, how great this model is, like how important it's been for people, how it's creating careers out of uh, jobs that wouldn't otherwise do so, how it's created these longstanding intergenerational assets that would never have happened. And, you know, In 2008, also in 2008, just as we were formalizing, we went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is just down the street, and I was an alum, um, because they, Nancy Fulbre, who was a professor at the time, wrote about worker cooperatives in a blog. So we approached her and said, hey, it's real and it's in your backyard. Here's what we're doing. What can we do with this collaboration? And we started working with Urban also, who was with the Food Cooperative Association. So we came up with classes that were just on, we built a certificate program. So it's like smaller than a minor, you know, it's four or five classes and an internship. So, you know, worker cooperators had gone and spoken at classes before in a bunch of departments. I had done it myself, but we didn't have any long-term programming that we could, you know, create and guide as cooperatives and have co-ops really kind of in the driver's seat or, you know, as part of the direction of the organization until the Valley Alliance was around. And again, that's 50 years of that just kind of not happening until we were able to say, hey, here's a system of worker cooperatives who are putting resources in and this relationship really matters. We have to make it work. So we're in our 11th year of having this cooperative um, education certificate and it's fantastic so before that we were just like going to a class one-off and that was really great i think education is really important but because we're an alliance of co-ops we had a different voice and people listened in a different way and i think having a curriculum is so important because it you really start to ingrain those values and 
um, different systems that are needed to create sustainable cooperatives when you have a solid curriculum. And I think it's also an advantage to have peer-to-peer learning with multiple co-ops because you're getting perspectives from different types of cooperatives rather than it just being maybe you're if you're just doing it directly to another co-op then you might think there's this one size fits all for what you need in your development but having um, experiences from various different types really I think helps address the needs of a co-op in a more holistic way. I I couldn't agree more. And I think something that we saw was that no one, from what we know, no one else in the United States was having co-op only classes that were ongoing. It was always co-ops were part of this, you know, maybe it was social enterprise class or alternative economics class, which is actually how I learned. I learned in a class at UMass in 99. It was this, it was Julie Graham who was doing something on economic alternatives and my life changed in that classroom. And people came to speak and it was magical for me. So yeah, I, I wanted to be part of something like that that, was, that wasn't just a one-off, that was ongoing. And co-ops wanted that to be something consistent that was relevant, not just, um, you know, oh, we're gonna write one syllabus and let it go for 20 years or 10 until someone doesn't wanna teach it anymore. We review those often and we have new pieces of reading and different people show up and we can even have, you know, co-op members like shadow in the class and take the class if they want. So yeah, uh, Ebony, I I couldn't agree more. It's so important to learn about our model and there's so much to learn. Yeah. And I love the addition of it being a fluid and relevant curriculum because I'm sure For instance, after the past year, the curriculum will look very different in the near future. So what type of cooperative businesses are members of VOC? And what are some of the benefits of membership? Yeah, so we are, so we're a a co-op of worker cooperatives. And I just want to say right off, you know, what one of the benefits of being a co-op association is that we can partner more effectively with our cooperative and movement partners. For example, um, when the neighboring food co-op association has legislation or something during co-op month, they can just contact Buck, whether it's the board or representatives or me, and kind of understand the voice and, and how to build um, programming that, that matters for all of us. Um, it's really actually something that we think makes uh, worker cooperatives be able to partner more effectively in general. So. Anyone who's a worker co-op can join. And right now we've got Collective Copies, which is, you know, was a founding member, our print shop with two locations, unionized print shop. We have Oxbow Design Build. They're doing great work uh, trying to have more affordable housing and they do great design work. They actually, I hired them to do some work in my kitchen and they were great. Uh, Pedal People, another founding member, human powered recycling compost hauling. So in Northampton, the uh, trash hauling is actually private, where you would go out and get someone to haul your trash, as opposed to, say, New York City, where it's through um, through the city. So you can contract with pedal people, you know, with bicycles instead of big, loud trucks. And that's been great. The Hive Makerspace is in Greenfield. They're, you know, a makerspace where you can go in and create something, you know, 3D printers and all sorts many different ways of um, fabricating and having technology there. And then we're working with two, we're also working with two new gr- two new groups. We have the Unbranded, which will be a marketing cooperative, and we have Beyond Abuse and Trauma, which is going to provide uh, social services to people throughout the region. Wow. I love how well-rounded the membership is. It's all very different. To me, it reminds me of like all the elements we would need to create a more just economy, Uh, alternative to marketing, alternative to trash pickup, all of these things that we need solutions to. So I know that you guys also do conversions. Can you speak a bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. And let me come back to your other question, too, about, you know, afterwards about uh, what membership benefits are. 
but Oxbow was a conversion. So we've supported seven conversions uh, since 2010. And that's been a, a wonderful thing to see and be a part of in my time as executive director. Um, I think one of the big challenges to conversions is, uh, I think there's two challenges. One is really being able to speak to people who are going to have to assume more responsibility and in a very different cultural position. So as opposed to, you know, a lot of times when you go to work, you want to do as little as possible and look as good as possible and go home as soon as possible. And a lot of times in a worker co-op, it's much more responsibility and you have to understand things that you didn't think you'd have to. Why does it matter to incorporate as a cooperative? Why do we have to meet together at night? Why do we have to have marketing? And the Valley Alliance, I think, is really well equipped to not only educate new members coming in, to understand that it's not just your average job and to plug them into a support system so they can ask questions about like, why would you ever need us to, I'm not an accountant, you know, to approach that. Uh, most of the people in Rock Co-ops are not accountants or lawyers or business degree, don't have business degrees. Um, so there's a lot of education in the area. So we are, that, that is a gift, but you know, you don't have to have those kind of things. So I think our, peer-to-peer -peer system provides that network where we have things that work. People develop systems that work over the past. I mean, some of these co-ops are 40 years old. So um, the other thing I think is at first, everyone's kind of excited about the conversion, whether you have a sympathetic owner who's going to depart or one who's going to become a member. The first year has a lot of energy and you get sometimes impressed and there's kind of um, uh, a spark that makes you kind of overcome a lot of challenges. And then in that, that 366th day to I think the beginning of year four is this really special time where you, you kind of need to get back to some of the uh, foundational elements to keep that as part of the discussion moving forward. Uh, things like having a good set of bylaws that talk about being co-op all the time, whenever they can having a membership agreement. So members know what they're getting into and they come and apply. Um, having really clear um, apprentice or member in training programs, you know, when you're new, um, what's expected of you and when, and to make it clear to see if you're a good fit or not. Um, and I say those things, the foundational documents, not because I think it's important to have pieces of paper, but I think because you want to continue that dialogue of this shared vision. That's what's one of the things that's so beautiful about cooperatives is you can build a shared vision together and achieve these shared goals together. And that, that the sky's the limit uh, when you can kind of have that connection about building trust, identifying your weaknesses, filling those gaps and really kind of focusing on your value add on what you're trying to do in the market and talk about being a co-op, you know? So those two issues we've really been able to work with, I think really efficiently with the Valley Alliance. And so much of it, of course we have, you know, uh, staff time and we have our programming, but so much of it I think is being able to meet and have just the phone numbers and emails of people who are doing the same stuff and saying, can you tell me what you're doing for fiscal literacy? and do you fill out your own 1099 PATRs and use retain earnings and all that kind of stuff. So it takes the intimidation away in so many cases. Yeah, especially when you're working with a new model that you're so unfamiliar with. And to your point about building something from the foundation together is so important. And it, I think it would allow people to be more invested into a business that they've fully embodied and believe in and also had decision-making roles and other roles into the foundation of its development. Yeah, and, you, and so I think that kind of is a great segue back to one of your questions about, you know, what's, so what's the benefit? Why be part of this? And, you know, first I think it's about the things we've already mentioned, the peer-to-peer -peer and just having, having resources um, on the, just at the ready. 
another is, you know, being a part of raising the profile in general in the region and being a leader, you know, having co-ops be leaders in the community on what it means to have dem you know, democracy in the workplace, economic democracy, um, supporting what it's like to have dignity in the workplace. And sometimes you're working with the public in a retail job. That's not always equated with a good career. Um, how to afford healthcare and things like that. And I think, you know, really having the opportunity to say, this is a job I can grow in as a person, as well as whatever the industry happens to be. Uh, another, I think, another important thing is, you know, maybe there's not one right way to form a worker cooperative. There are some ways that can get you uh, to have more challenges down the road, like not having your bylaws set up, uh, having someone not familiar with the, the model set up your articles of incorporation, um, not really looking at what you want for a purpose in your business plan. And the Valley Alliance really takes a lot of care in those things to try to set people up for success for the long term. And, you know, you can do math, you know, not all the conversions we supported have become members. And while we would love everyone who is in the area to be a member, that's not our goal. If you just wanted to get the support to become a co-op and you feel like you're good, then, hey, good. Maybe we did a really good job there. Um, we haven't gotten feedback that our initial support there has ever been bad. So I think those things really matter. Of being, when you're being a co-op from Go, I think when people are showing up for job interviews and you know, seeing where they're gonna fit in this new model with people, um, I think the antenna are really out to say, yeah, but you're really the boss. You know, I can see that. So I don't know what this co-op thing is, but I'm just gonna go to you like everyone else. So I think really having as much of that structure and believing in your structure is really important. So those are some of the benefits, you know, and we have other programming that I think, you know, co-op should be really proud of that they built. We have the cooperative, inner cooperative development fund, which is 5% of member surplus goes to a fund. And we've supported a number of co-ops with that. And we invest in funds when we don't have a use for it ourselves, building co-ops regionally and nationally. Um, and we have an, this added capital asset that co-ops can draw on. You know, we have the certificate program. We co-founded a cross-sector association called the Valley Cooperative Business Association. So we get to connect with other co-ops in the area. So there's a lot of great things we're doing. And it's, uh, I think, a really exciting thing for not just new members, but any worker cooperative to be a part of. Those are all amazing benefits. And I wish that there were more uh, worker co-op networks, which we'll talk about in a bit, because uh, I'd love to hear your opinion on why there is a void in that. But uh, you mentioned the Inter-Cooperative Development Fund, and that was one of the things that intrigued me most about VOC. So what are the common barriers to funding that you would say this helps to overcome? Because I know that that's one of the main barriers of starting a co-op yeah i think that uh funding is i think funding is really important and i think the type of funding you get is really important i think when we were formalizing in 2008 and 2009 i think there was less awareness in the in the area um in our our region of western mass and southern vermont and you know i get it people say like well it's a bubble and it's you know, affluent um you know, we have a real material difference with a lot of other parts of the country because of educational infrastructure and um, how the politics are here. But I can just tell you that as far as the business world, Staples wants to kick the butt of collective copies no matter who the hell they are. And they really don't care. And we've gotten facts. Sorry, I say we. I used to work at collective copies. Um, they got faxes from disgruntled middle management on the directive about how to treat collective copies. And it's not pretty. So I think that, you know, we were really trying to develop uh, the profile of what worker cooperatives are and how they're important to the community in different ways than just a job. So that was a little bit of a tangent. And, but one of the reasons why that's relevant is because, you know, we wanted 
worker cooperators wanted to be part of these discussions and financing was really one of them to say, why, why can't this co-op get off the ground? You know, they only need $10,000 or something like that. So, and what we discovered through urban uh, was that if you call yourself a co-op in Italy, you have to give 3% of your surplus to a development fund. Doesn't matter. There's a bunch of different funds and I was able to go there through the master's program uh, at St. Mary's, the, Inter the International Center for Cooperative Management. So you go to Italy and you go to these, um, these funds and some of them, these development co-ops and some of them are Catholic. Some of them are leftist, like kind of, kind of anarcho communist kind of, you know, like they're not, they don't deal directly with the state all the time, but um, it's some of them are centrist, you know, you can do any, doesn't matter the flavor of development you're doing, but you have to choose these and they have their specialties. You can, we could talk about that too, but um, yeah, the state is just an administrator. There's no money coming from the government to support this uh, system of co-ops. There are collaborative projects. We can talk about that too, but they're, it's co-op led and co-op funded. So we really loved that idea and thought that that was a key to saying, hey, not only are we gonna have these oftentimes heroic stories of people often disgruntled from the traditional day to day say, not only do I wanna do what I do for a living, I wanna do it in a way that makes me feel self-realized, that makes me feel like an equal at the workplace, and that brings the best out of people. That's, I think co-ops can do that. But you need the funding that's gonna support that. And a lot of that means these technical things like don't have an individual guarantor. Like if we were gonna form a co-op when you did money, it's like, oh, Adam, can you just sign over your house? And like some, that's what a lot of people did, but it, can tamper with your structure. And it goes back to that thing I was talking about where people are like, well, Adam's really a boss because he has the most money on the line. What I think co-op structures are really good at, and if you understand them, you can do this with capital too, is to put members in charge of everything together. So long, super long story short, yeah, the fund is really important because we get to make direct loans to some, to some of our members and then we're investing in co-op funds. Um, we invest in shared capital cooperative, which itself is a co-op. That's a thrilling connection for us. Um, and I ended up actually through that, just a little personal part. Um, after 14 years of collective copies, I applied for a job of shared capital, partly because of that collaboration. Um, so I, I work there now too, as director of member relations. And I think part of my hiring was because I was so passionate about the type of capital that people get for their co-ops. You know, one of the things I think we were really up against as a movement is taking out a loan is bad. It's seen as bad. You're dependent on someone. You can't be independent of any money. And that's just not true. Of course, when you have a loan, you're expected to pay it back. However, during COVID, a great example is both the Valley Alliance and Shared Capital gave immediate loan forbearance. We just went to our co-ops, and this was in March. Hey, we're doing three months, no payments, don't worry about it. Just don't, there's no, you don't have to contact, you don't have to say why, because we are really much more interested, not in a short-term gain, but in long-term partnership and membership. So yeah, the fund's been really great. Ebony, and it's been a cornerstone of what we do and who we are, and we use um, the money we earn off the loans or we we have off the loans. You know, they, we do charge interest. We have we put that towards educational components uh, with scholarships for worker members to go to conferences or to go to related uh, cooperative education, and it's just a wonderful thing. It's such a great thing to be a part of. That is really wonderful. And yeah, to your point about loans being a bad thing, it's all about where you're getting them from. Like a lot of people are not interested in getting a loan from a bank because where is that interest going to? But 
I love the idea of the interest going back into the loan fund to further help cooperative development and other co-ops um, to start as well. And I hope that the U.S. one day can adopt something like in Italy um, because that's one way to see the federal government as like a useful intermediary. <laughs> and um, and I agree more. <laughs> and I also think the fund is great because it gives the co-op seed money uh, to even start building that foundation. But then other co-ops in that cooperative network can then support that co-op maybe through services that they might need like marketing or other various services. And I'd love to hear more about the certificate in cooperative enterprise curriculum. Uh, you guys have interns that end up working for VOC, I believe, or for the co-ops that are members of VOC to gain hands-on experience? Yeah, both. Um, in fact, our first two interns, uh, Mark Paul and Anastasia Wilson, uh, were basically the designers of the internship program. You know, we went to them, Urban and I went to them and said, hey, so we're not going to pretend we have an internship system set up. We don't if you want to take this internship, what we think we're going to have you do is to go around to all the co-ops, talk about the needs they have that they would feel comfortable um, with an intern, you know, working on. And we wanted internships that were valuable, not just, you know, uh, administrative stuff that wasn't going to make an impact or that they couldn't take with them, like on a resume or just to, you know, feel meaningful. And that was really important to us. And we also wanted a student voice in how it was created. So yeah, Mark and Anastasia were really great. And they, you know, came up with a ton of ideas on how this should go. And it turned into a, a pretty big component of what their certificate program did. The internship itself is uh, 240 hours a semester. So it's a little bit of time, you know, if it's, if it's 12 weeks, you're doing 20 hours a week. Sometimes it's 13 weeks. And these internships have a great range. They can be, um, I remember Luke Seberg explored what a pedal people expansion would be like. And they ended up not going with it, but I think that was an informed decision and they had to come over, they had to overcome other hurdles before an expansion was possible. Uh, another one is, you know, both the neighboring food co-op association and VOC have this uh, goal of assessing and demonstrating the impact of co-ops in the area. So we've got interns who are collecting data and information and calling co-ops, you know, our representatives to say, Hey, this is the, like this year, Teddy McCormick, our intern for impact was saying, uh, Hey, I want to do a qualitative piece on how co-ops survived COVID. I said, <laughs> that's the best idea uh, I've heard all week. Let's do that. Um, here's what I think the hurdles are. And here's what I think the benefits would be. Because, uh, you know, it's important to really be sensitive to how hard the pandemic has really been. And it's also come at a time during immense political strife with a uh, long overdue siren about how important racial equity is. And a lot of our co-ops are working on that too. And there's some work we've done recently on racial equity as well directly, really having our co-ops and our system kind of the line on what it means to be part of the, um, I think part of the solution there. Um, so I'm happy to talk about that too. But yeah, so Teddy was talking about um, wanted to do this qualitative piece, like an article, and I might go in geo uh, if we can get it there. And so he's going to not just collect data on number of members and how you survived, but hey, what were the stories that kind of made you overcome the hurdles? And there were, you know, some really difficult challenges that co-ops had to really think through and make difficult decisions on. And I don't envy that, but I think it's part of our job to tell the story. And so Teddy's gonna do that. And we've had others too, where, you know, you're doing um, an assessment of a particular co-op opportunity. Like we have this bakery idea where 
food co-ops would be members and worker co-ops would be members and kind of do large scale bakery. So there's a great variety and it's wonderful to just see these kind of rack up and all this information and research that we've got, we, we benefit from because of students and that they get to go to their, whatever their lives are and to say, hey, you know, I was part of this real thing, not just, you know, for the mailroom, the proverbial mailroom internship. Right. I think that's so important for interns to feel like they're not at a lower level and that they're actually contributing something that's worthwhile and will be sustainable to the movement. I think that's a great idea to have a case study about the impacts that COVID has had on cooperatives and especially in comparison to how they've been able to manage uh, versus like traditional businesses. Has the co-op model created more resilience for them through the pandemic? And how can people join the enterprise program? Right, so um, we have some ways where if you're not a student in the economics department at UMass, you can still um, participate in the program. But you know, we partner with the economics department. Um, they have a, a wonderful and very radical tradition that stems from the 70s. I think it was 72, they hired five Marxian economists. And I learned from them in the 90s when I was a student there. I was lucky enough to be able to get in because <laughs> I'm glad UMass took me because Harvard wasn't calling. And, you know, I learned a lot about I mean, the information I got at UMass and about co-ops changed my life forever. And it made my life make sense. And it made me have conviction about what I wanted to do with my life. And I'm really thankful. So it was a natural thing to go to Nancy Fulbray and Jerry Friedman and um, at the time, Steve Resnick, before his untimely passing to say, hey, this is what we wanted. We kind of want to do this. And Kevin Crocker, there were a bunch of people who were a part of this to say, we want something, you know, kind of larger. It's kind of not just a, a class visit. And I think, you know, going to one department made us, uh, gave us the opportunity to learn a lot about how to speak the language of the academy, which is really different in a lot of ways. And for us to kind of share our language with them. And I think really all you have to do is to um, hear or see, see one of the flyers or hear one of our champions in the economics department talk about the opportunity. There's a couple of classes that are just about co-ops that you have to take. And then there's research and um, political economy classes as well, plus the internship and then you get your certificate. That sounds like a great program, especially adding the praxis to all the theory that you learn about co-ops. So I've been doing a lot of research about cooperatives in Europe. And I've noticed that it seems like they have built strong cooperative support networks. What do you think is holding the US from doing the same? So big, big question there. And you and I were on a call last week that kind of asked the same question, right? And I mean, it's your podcast, so I'll answer your question, but I want to ask you the same thing where, you know, when, when Ajua said, hey, um, we're talking about peer-to-peer. -peer. So does ownership and control um, play a role in being peer-to-peer? -peer? And, you know, I was uh, given a moment to speak and I said, I just want to speak in favor of that because of Vox experience, because of worker cooperatives themselves. That's kind of, I think that structure plays a role in maintaining the balance of bringing the worker voice forward and having these kind of centers of democracy and learning and productivity and service. And, you know, you saw people speak up that I think um, felt as though that was some kind of slight towards them or felt like it was cutting them out if they weren't part of, if there were a developer who wasn't part of an association like the Valley Alliance. And that's not what it's about at all, you know? Um, but it's just saying, hey, here's the model we have researched and seen that works. Can we try that? 
<laughs> can we do that? And I think right now there's, I mean, I think what Gio would tell us is that there's a nonprofit industrial complex that's really interested in keeping not only the voice of labor, but the ability of labor removed from larger financial decisions and legislative participation. Um, I would certainly agree with that in many cases. And again, I think the reason why the Valley Alliance is to the extent that we're successful is because our question was, what does development have to look like for worker co-ops to be involved? Not here's what development looks like, here's where you can be involved. And it's just a different discussion that's been really wonderful to be a part of. Um, I mean, it's also different because, you know, I think the United States culture is not one of joining. Um, we don't grapple well with large societal issues. We are a divided nation. There's a lot of issues happening. And I think understanding that values can be a driving force in your business is just brand new news, like strange music from an alien land for people. So over and over, it's just saying, no, 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 you can do this. You can do this right now. You can probably even do this with some of the people you already know. Yeah. And I guess also with those support networks in Europe is they're doing a lot of what you guys are doing, creating these alliances where they're meeting their own funding needs. They're not necessarily waiting for the government and they're relying on um, things like credit unions and other local cooperative banks to fund their needs. And I feel like I could be wrong, but I feel like that is, is the main void in the U.S. is the lack of funding available to cooperatives. And I guess that's because a lot of it is going to nonprofits instead, which are reliant on those government payouts. Whereas I guess cooperatives are a threat to the government. And they realize that once cooperatives um, can build their own structure and have their own governance, that they won't need the reliance on the government in the same way. I mean, I think you raise a lot of interesting points there. And, you know, just to say for me, like I, I think that nonprofits play a critical role in our society. Um, from needle exchanges to many hospitals to a lot of research, I think the model has a real purpose. When it comes to a movement that has principles and values like self-help, self-responsibility, equity, democratic membership control, it just seems that you can have a lot more buy-in by using the cooperative structure for those needs as well. It's not just you're banking with a credit union or your groceries if you have a food co-op, it's, hey, how can we expand our understanding of the model to bring it to development and, and legislation? And I mean, one of the, for me, one of the interesting things about what you're talking about, Ebony, is so Mondragon, which we cite probably way too much. Um, but one of the great things about them is that, yeah, they were, they were out on an island. They were attacked by their government. They, they're separatists. They didn't want to be a part of it. And they paid, paid dearly for that opinion. Um, so they're kind of separate. They don't have government funding. They have their own retirement. They have their own social security. Um, and then in Italy, you see something a little different where after World War II in 1947, the, um, they had a legislative effort to put cooperatives in the constitution. So you see reconstruction, post-World War II reconstruction geared towards worker cooperatives. And you have a worker cooperative movement that's geared towards partnering with, with each other to build, to build a movement that's opposed to the United States where worker cooperatives were written out of legislation. Red Scare is gonna come and take your kids. So we can't have an empowered labor force. And of course this was 70 years ago. So I'm not trying to, this is not news to anyone, but as far as the impact that had, it was really big. So our way of looking at worker cooperatives um, and labor, especially after the 70s, you know, with the whole stagnation thing that's happening economically is really two sides of the same coin where we're trying to put the voice of labor back into 
a lot of the discussions we think that that's what their whole purpose is to talk about employment, to talk about benefits when you retire, to talk about benefits when you're not able to work. And people should be who are experiencing those things need to be involved in those decisions, I think, to make the best decisions possible. I've noticed that when I visited a few different European countries, it's just that the government seems to value quality of life and citizenship a lot more uh, than the U.S. And yeah, in terms of labor rights and all of these things that make us more sovereign and have an optimal well-being seems to be uh, neglected in the U.S. And I think that that's that's really necessary to put um, cooperatives on the same level as a, a, a business that is driving towards capitalism. And so what, what would you say are the tools that are needed to build more regional alliances in the U.S.? Yeah, I think, um, and again, you just have so many great points. I want to keep talking and talking about them. But um, as far as the tools that are needed, I think we have the tools now. And I think what it's about is, um, and this is always what VOC has tried to do with its representatives is say, hey, can you take some time in a month to take your nose away from the grindstone of running a business together, to think about what it means to, to build a movement. Uh, if you can do that, we can provide a venue for you to bring your needs and goals. And we have programming that will meet some of them and we can build more for you. Like every year we have a, a technical assistance plan that we can build for a co-op if they want help with something. We hand it out every year. So I think the tools are there. I think the, the challenge is being able to take that time and have the vision to, um, you know, allocate some resources to something that isn't there yet and to really filter through a ton of information on what it is like to be in the cooperative movement, you know? And there's other places outside of Spain and Italy. Uh, there's a, a ton of great things happening in Canada, as well as the grad school program I went to. That is a, a co-op itself through St. Mary's. Um, so I think what, when, when I get a call or when Vok gets a call, it's often, um, the challenges often are, Hey, how can we build something that's sustainable? And that comes down to resources and relationships, probably in reverse order. It's probably relationships first. So building relationships with other cooperatives and coming from a place of learning wanting to learn about what they've done and to do that for a while, you know, not just at first and then try to tell someone what the program is or anything like that. And with that information, you can begin to share like, well, here's shared gaps we have. Valk was easy. It happened in 30 minutes. Marketing, financial literacy, wanting to see more co-ops. That was it. Done. And so from there, we can kind of build the conversation. But it might take a little bit more time. And, you know, right now we're zoomed out. We're, I think, tired. I think a lot of organizers are tired. I think our BIPOC leadership and community members are tired from having to lead and survive uh, in a different way. And to try to keep all those things in mind as you're building things is um, sometimes more challenging, but it makes the work so valuable. So... Yeah, I think that those are, the, those are the things you need to do. Just really connect and be honest about connecting with the co-ops around you, even when you might not love everything you hear, or even when they feel like they're too busy to connect. And then you can kind of draw their attention to the working models we have um, to see what they think. So do you think it would organically turn into a regional alliance potentially once co-ops just start reaching out to each other um or does there need to be some type of more designed structure to have them all connect rather than just one co-op connecting with one co-op well we definitely see a variety of different local and regional 
networks. And again, on the call last week, we had PACA, Philadelphia area. Um, they do a lot of important work. I think they are kind of leading the fray on what it means to try to go back to book groups, which is, was a huge part of how a lot of co-ops formed through our history, especially among um, BIPOC cooperatives, BIPOC communities. Um, and then you've got no boss and then you've got something like Bach and you know, we're, we have differences. And I think, I don't think it's necessarily a given that once co-ops start talking that they'll want to form a co-op a co-op of co-ops. Why that is, I'm not completely sure, but I think sometimes it is harder to have a conversation about dues than it is to have one about trying to have your kind of grant apparatus or a fee-for-service apparatus, you know? And I just think that there is an important space in the dialogue to have worker cooperatives really be a part of it and not something that you listen to because you should, and then you have to go back to the tough realities. I don't mean to paint grants as some easy slam dunk because they're not, you know, and then say, well, here's what we can do with this grant it's to say, how can we reformulate what it means to get funding to be centered around the, the voice of worker cooperators who are saying, these are our needs. And here's our kind of core funding is taken care of from, from dues so we can do long-term planning. And if we get grants, so great. But I think that shift to have uh, worker cooperatives really uh, run their own support and development has been a revolutionary in many cases. Yeah, I really like the idea of the study groups with PACA too, uh, because it really starts to kind of dissect uh, the voids that we're filling with the cooperative model uh, in the system, but also start to build those relationships with each other, uh, which you said is the first step to um, building the co-op. And capacity, um, which you also brought up, is maybe why cooperatives are intimidated or just really lack the capacity to do something extra outside of their own co-op development because I find that co-ops are already very, have very small teams. So I, I think that that could be a barrier too. But I've also thought about uh, having like handbook resources, which I know that um, you guys have done, but having resources that people can go directly to to find uh, some resources for funding, for instance, or if they're starting a home care co-op, maybe what are some of the challenges that they had, which is something that we spoke about on the call as well. I think that's really important to workshop the needs that uh, co-ops need in their development at the beginning stages. Uh, so it would be cool to have a case study of that too. Like, what are the things that you felt like you needed, for instance, when doing a worker co-op conversion or when you decided that you wanted to start this fried share co-op or things like that that's maybe in a more compact form that people can tap into as well these are really great points and i think one of the great things about associations is that you can gather that information through experience and spread it throughout membership and that's kind of the expectation is that everyone benefits from that experience because we're all trying to support it. And I think in other venues, I at least can say that I've seen it in other venues where a developer learns something and then they can corral it. And I'm actually using words of the people that I interviewed for my grad research um, to say, hey, what, why are you different as a co-op association? And I think one of the, um, I remember Urban himself saying, um, something like a lot of developers out there are gathering information and using it to charge, you know, as part of their package. And um, I just think that as a movement, again, like going back to our, our core values 
is, you know, that's not, I don't think that's ideal. I think we, the cooperative movement has done a lot. Uh, co-ops themselves are participating and giving resources. And again, like in a worker co-op, that's all money they would get. There's no funny budget line for worker co-ops to just allocate to associations. It's money that would be, that would be in their pockets. And to see that over and over, you know, I think worker, what they want to see, from what I understand, is worker cooperatives not only being a part of these discussions, but also being able to benefit from the work that's done in them. And I think that's an important part of associations, too. Yes, exactly. Having that reciprocal relationship. Okay, so this is the last question that I ask everyone. Oh, and great. it's, how do you envision a changed world? Oh, <laughs> So are you familiar with the book, Freedom is an Endless Meeting? No, I'm not. So I think that there is one of my favorite things that I get to see over and over uh, being not just at the Valley Alliance, but also shared capital is to see people go from often experiencing a hardship, getting far from a job they don't like, quitting a job they don't like, um, losing funding for something, and having this need that they need to figure out and that they figure it out with others with the support of co-op systems and it becomes this story of working together to meet cooperative collective need through a cooperative and i just think that's i see it every day and it's just a wonderful thing to be a part of i think that's how i envision change i think it um, has to be people looking at we're looking at we, we have to look at ourselves and say okay um we don't have the money to just go in and enter the market by ourselves and have some big company we have to work together to try to meet our needs and maybe to meet the needs of others too and i think that that's the core principle and that's why again i think that why associations are great because that's an extension of that idea you're using the model that you're trying to promote I mean, another one is that when I took a look at social movements throughout American history, and I'm really happy to see, you know, the Panthers get more attention, you know, with um, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah coming out for a film. Thank you to people who are putting these films together. Same for with MLK and the FBI. You know, movements have relied on um, a strange kind of charismatic leadership and to have some kind of wherever their funding is coming from. And what I think co-ops can do is to bring that voice of leadership to still be at the fore, whether that's a, a black leadership, a, um, indigenous leadership, any kind of BIPOC leadership, gender equity. Um, I think you can say, okay, we're gonna form co-ops that are going to support this mission and you have your funding there and you have you know, mechanisms to support these systems that I think were a huge part of the downfall of social movements that I wish were still happening that are, or that were severely uh, damaged because of those gaps. Because of those gaps that you're talking about, right? You're talking about these gaps. And for me, having a movement that has revenue streams that are like, oh no, we, we love taking a stance on this. And I think one of the reasons why I'm so happy to be proud of, uh, so happy to be part of Valley Alliance and share capital is, oh no, we want to be part of saying that institutional racism and police brutality is wrong and we are we are there this is not a discussion of if it's happening or hey i have experience with the justice system it was no pleasure cruise but here i am you know i'm a free guy in massachusetts so it's different and we want to be a part of those solutions so i'm i think that's the other part of it is to say can we add these cooperative mechanisms so that movements can support themselves more more effectively even more effective. Yes, that's another way of thinking about supporting these uh, movements towards more justice that I haven't even thought about. Um, but it reminds me of this quote uh, from Amy Cahurl, who I interviewed in the last podcast, and she says that we wait for philanthropy or the government to be our savior, but we don't need them to be our savior we don't need saving we're saving ourselves and I think that with the cooperative movement um, 
we can build that collective power to have the the capital that's needed to sustain these movements and sustain these uh, businesses to hopefully become the status quo. So thank you so much, Adam. Yeah. Oh, Ebony, this is really great. Thanks again for your time and the opportunity to speak with you. I hope to do it again soon. And my best to you in this uh, podcast series. It's really exciting. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I'm on a mission to get these little known solutions out to as many people as possible. So please help me by sharing, leaving a like, and a review. If you would like to stay in the loop about future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast or my newsletter at cooperativejournal.com. Because I didn't say save the world, I said change the world, improve it, make it better than we find it.